Well, I thought that today I would uh, talk a little bit about parenting because there's absolutely, at least from my perspective, nothing in the world that will plunge you uh, closer to the edges of your sanity and deeper to the depths of unconditional love like parenting will. Sometimes I hear people say, young people, uh, we're, we're waiting until we're ready for children. To which I would reply, well, if that's true, then you're going to be waiting forever because you will never be ready for children. I'm not saying you shouldn't do everything that you can to prepare, of course. I'm just saying that it's impossible to ever be completely fully prepared for the experiencing that parenting will bring into your life. There's nothing in the world to bring together inside of you such a profound sense of joy and responsibility as parenting will. Now, over time, uh, we tend to relax a bit as parents, but especially in the very beginning, uh, the responsibility of taking care of our child and taking care of them the right way can be almost overwhelming. In fact, I came across a list recently. I thought you might enjoy it, at least for those of you who are mothers in the crowd. The list is this, the seven ways that motherhood changes with time. Seven ways that motherhood changes with time. See if this sounds familiar. The first way motherhood changes with time. With your first baby, you begin wearing maternity clothes as soon as your OBGYN confirms your pregnancy. With your second baby, you wear your regular clothes as long as possible. By your third baby, your maternity clothes are your regular clothes. Second way motherhood changes with time. With your first baby, you pre-wash your newborn's clothes, color coordinate them, and fold them in the baby's little dresser. With your second, you check to make sure the clothes are clean and discard only the ones with the darkest stains. By your third baby, boys can wear pink, can't they? (laughs) Number three way motherhood changes with time. With your first baby, you pick them up at the first sign of distress. With your second, you pick them up when crying threatens to wake up someone else. By your third baby, you teach your three-year-old how to rewind the mechanical swing. (laughs) Fourth way that motherhood changes with time. With your first baby, when the pacifier falls to the floor, you sterilize it in boiling water before using it again. With your second baby, you run it under hot water for a couple of seconds. By your third baby, you wipe it off and you pop it back in. Number five way motherhood changes with time. With your first baby, you change your baby's diaper every hour, whether they need it or not. With your second, you change the diaper every two to three hours if needed. By your third baby, you try to change before others complain about the smell or you see it sagging to their knees. Oh, number six way motherhood changes with time. With your first baby, you take them to baby gymnastics, baby yoga, and baby story hour. With your second, you take them to baby gymnastics. By your third baby, you take them to the grocery store and the dry cleaners. And finally, the number seven way that motherhood changes with time. When your first child swallows a coin, you rush them to the ER and demand an x-ray. When your second child swallows a coin, you carefully watch for it to pass. When your third child swallows a coin, you deduct it from their allowance. (laughs) Oh, it does change over time. And we do tend to mellow with time the longer we do this. But regardless, no matter how long you are a parent, be included, there's nothing that gives such a profound sense of deep responsibility than being entrusted with this tiny, precious, priceless 
human being with all of the potential in the world and God's very own fingerprints upon them. Maybe you know what I'm talking about today. Now, if you can relate to that experience, I want you to add on top of that experience, imagine that it's the Son of God that we're talking about. So imagine that you are a new, young, first-time mother named Mary, or her new husband, a carpenter named Joseph. What would that be like as a new parent? Talk about a lot of pressure, not just the customary, incredible pressure of proving yourself as a worthy parent who knows what you're doing. Now imagine that you are doing this experience of parenting with the knowledge that this bundle of joy is God's one and only son. There is just so much about this that we would like to know. What was Jesus like as a little boy? What was it like being his parent? Did he always put away his toys without being asked and go to bed without complaining? Or is it possible that Mary and Joseph, just like us, sometimes felt totally inadequate too? So much that we would be fascinated to know about this chapter in life of Jesus, the early years. But for all of the things we would like to know, the truth is we know precious little about this chapter of life. I mean, we get a pretty good picture of Jesus as a baby. We know a lot about Jesus as a man. But truth be told, in between those two points, we aren't given much. In fact, in all of the Bible, there is just one single snapshot that tells the story between Jesus the baby and Jesus the man. One single snapshot. And that might be a little bit surprising. That for the most influential person in the history of the world, we are only given one snapshot to tell that story. And while there are so many things we'd be interested to know, we have to accept that from God's perspective, this single snapshot is all that we need to know about the early years of the man who absolutely changed the world. And it's recorded for us in the Bible in the book of Luke chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles with you, and those of you who are home, I hope you have your Bible out or your your mobile device, however you get to God's Word, I hope you have it out, I hope you have it open and in front of you. We've been pouring over this chapter, Luke chapter 2, all the way through December as we talked about Christmas and Jesus' arrival into the world, then last week his infancy, and this morning we're going to wrap this chapter up, Luke chapter 2, with one final account that tells the story between Jesus the infant and Jesus the man. So Luke chapter 2 and verse 40 begins this way, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. Now, you need to understand at the outset in this story, when Luke mentions this event took place when Jesus was 12 years old, every Jewish reader would have immediately understood that this was precisely at the most critical juncture point of Jesus' personal development. Now, in our culture, we generally think of at least three stages of human development, childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. Some would say there are four or five or six categories now, but at least three stages. But in Jesus' day and Jewish culture, there were only two distinct categories. 
And the threshold from one to the other was between the 12th and the 13th year of life. For the first 12 years of life, he was considered a child. And then from the 13th year on, he was considered to be a man. Two stages of development, childhood and manhood. So, for instance, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says, When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. There was childhood and there was manhood. Now, I say all of that just to point out that Jesus' 12th year was not any random point along the way, but it was the precise point in his life that hinged together the two parts of his developmental life. So maybe it would be something like me telling you a story today about something very significant that happened to someone at the end of their senior year of college or as they were enlisting in the military, you would immediately pick up that this was a very important passage in their life as they were passing into adulthood when Jesus was 12 years old. And so at this very distinct point in time in his life, when Jesus was 12 years old, as was their family custom, he traveled along with his parents to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover festival. Now, ideally, if at all possible, Jews would attend the three major festivals of the year in Jerusalem, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. But if you could only make it to just one, Passover was the one for sure to make it for. And so along with thousands and thousands of others, Mary and Joseph would take Jesus on this journey as a custom each year. So verse 42 says, and so they went up for the Passover festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. Now, because the journey was long and it could be dangerous, the pilgrims would travel together in large caravans to and from these festivals. Maybe it might be like us traveling to a big family reunion camping trip, but getting there, everybody in the family is traveling in a caravan, and there's campers and there's trailers and SUVs and minivans, and as you travel along for a day or two to get to the camping spot, it's hard to say exactly who is in what vehicle because everybody is traveling along together. But after an entire day of traveling, having assumed the whole time that Jesus is in one of the other minivans with Uncle Scrapper or Grandma and Grandpa, Mary and Joseph discover to their horror that Jesus is not with them on the trip. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. Verse 45 says, when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. 
But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And this right here is the one single snapshot that we are given of Jesus growing up from a child to man. And it's also the only snapshot we're given of Mary and Joseph trying their very best to get him raised. Now, as we try to get inside the story this morning, I want you to try to think about it from their perspective this morning as parents, not wearing the rose-colored glasses of Bible story pictures, but, but I want you to make an assumption that Mary and Joseph were real live parents living in the real world like your parents did or like you did as a parent. And I want you to try to envision these events unfolding with all the feelings and the thoughts and the emotions that you would feel if you were in their shoes. They travel along for a full day, and Jesus is 12 years old. And you know how 12-year-old boys are. They like their spades. If you're at Disneyland, they can go on rides all by themselves, just them and their friends. They don't need you hovering. And they can go get their lunch. You just give them the money. They will go get it. They don't need a chaperone to go everywhere. You know how 12-year-old boys are. So they give him some space. They make this trip with the whole family every single year. Jesus knows the drill. And then, after they have traveled along for a full day, they then discover... Jesus is not with him. And so now they travel a full day back to Jerusalem. Can you imagine getting back in your car, turning around, and driving all the way back to Anaheim? And then once they get there, they spend another day or two looking for him before they can find him. Now, I don't know exactly what your family or your parents were like growing up, but from my own personal experience... I've got to imagine that that journey back the second time to Nazareth was perhaps not the most joyous family journey ever that they had experienced in their life. Perhaps there was a bit of family tension. Maybe. I remember one time when I was about that age, I was on a choir trip to the Grand Canyon And the group was split up between several vans as we made our way. At one of the stops along the way, I quite innocently, yet absentmindedly, wandered off on a trail to one of the ledges. And uh, we were a bunch of singers. And, uh, And I became quite interested at the sound of my own singing voice bouncing off the canyon walls. So fascinated, in fact, that I missed the vans leaving. Assuming that I was in one of the other vans, it was not until a half an hour down the road that they discovered me to be missing. I can still remember the van slamming on the brakes in the gravel when it pulled back into the lot to pick me up. Uh, My choir director was a really good man. That was the only time I ever heard him swear. Um, But he used some pretty colorful language to describe What an inconvenience I had caused to have him turn back around to come back and get me a second time. And then when he was done expressing himself, the rest of the trip was quiet, very quiet. Now, we know that Mary and Joseph were incredibly good people, but they were still human beings. 
Now think about this. The only picture that we are given of them in these early years, and honestly, if you put yourself in the story, it is a picture of parenting frustration. What a mystery that must have been for them. On the one hand, they knew that this boy was the Messiah. He's the salvation of the world. He's the hope for the nations. They knew that he was Emmanuel, God with us. And yet, on the other hand, it was incredibly obvious that he was still an adolescent boy. And they had to struggle with the same emotions that any other parent of a 12-year-old boy had to struggle with. They struggled with feelings of fear. If you are a mom or a dad with a child old enough to walk, then you probably know that same lump in your throat, sick to your stomach feeling that Mary and Joseph felt. You've been there, right? Suddenly you can't find your child and you know they were right there two minutes ago. And even though you know in your head there's a 99% chance that they're completely fine, there's still this reflexive sense of panic because in that moment you cannot find them in the grocery store, at a park, at a football game, at church. And even if this experience only lasts for two minutes, it is two minutes of sheer internal panic. How fast can they initiate an Amber Alert? Parents know what this feels like. Now imagine that it's you experiencing this story, and you're coming back from vacation, and you are a whole day down the road when you discover that your 12-year-old is not with you. And there are no cell phones. There are no police to call. There's nothing to do but a long drive back to the last place you saw them. And as you drive along, mostly it's quiet. Every so often there's a question, are you absolutely sure? Did you you see him down in the lobby at breakfast this morning? And there's just a lot of wondering and worrying. Is he scared? Is he hurt? Is he okay? Does he know what to do? Can you drive this car any faster? Most of us as parents spend plenty of time, as it is, worrying about whether or not we will get our kids through their growing up years, let alone God's son. Oh, great. He's not even 13, and already I lost him. Of course, we know the story, and we know they find him, and turns out, He's perfectly fine. In fact, not only is he alive and well, but they find him having, well, what appears to be a delightful time discussing the finer points of theology with the religious teachers in the temple. And with incredible speed, these feelings of fear evaporate into feelings of frustration. Now, parents, mom and dad, you know how that can happen, right? You know how your emotions can go from frightened concern to anger in a nanosecond. It's amazing how fast it can happen. Example, Junior's playing up on the roof of the garage. Like you have told him so many times not to do. You happen to glance out the back window and you see him fall off into the backyard and you run to his side. With your heart in your throat, speak to me. Speak to me. Are you alive? Can you still move your legs? And though a bit startled, he tells you that he's fine. And in a nanosecond, you want to kill him. If I ever catch you up on that roof again, you're going to wish you died in the fall because I'm going to break your neck and it'll be far more painful than falling off this roof. 
it can just go from this fright and concern to this absolute anger, frustration in a nanosecond. I've been there. Mary was there. She says to him, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been looking for you anxiously. That word anxiously, it means with great emotional pain and suffering. Are you trying to kill us? Because that's what it feels like. Now that kind of makes you think, doesn't it? I mean, we know on the one hand that Jesus never sinned. Never. But just because Jesus never sinned doesn't mean that he never frustrated his parents. Like a baby who just will not sleep at night, or a toddler who won't stop saying mine, or a teenager who seems to be unable to ever remember to shut the refrigerator door. They had their moments of parenting frustration, just like any parent does. Feelings of fear, like any parent has. Feelings of frustration, like any parent does. But along with these, they have these feelings of amazement. With this child. As they enter into the temple, here he is engaged in dialogue with the religious experts of the day, and along with everyone else, on multiple levels, they are astonished at what they see. There is this sense in which he is a painfully ordinary 12 year old boy, and yet there is also this sense in which he is so obviously much more than that. And they struggle with feelings. Of misunderstanding. Why were you searching for me? Jesus asked them. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Now it is clear that Jesus already has an awareness of his special relationship with the Heavenly Father and the mission that he is called to. Jesus understands this. But Mary and Joseph, it says, they did not understand what he meant by this. By the way, this is going to be a reoccurring theme throughout the life and the ministry of Jesus. People struggling to understand exactly who he is, what he is doing, where he is heading. He's going to be misunderstood by the crowds. He's going to be misunderstood by the leaders. He's going to be misunderstood by his own followers, even by his own parents. It says in verse 50, but they did not understand what He was saying to them. So when you think about all the years of time in his life, of all the stories that could have been told from Jesus' early years, why this particular one? We have this solitary picture of the child, and the central takeaway is clear from this story. Luke's actually made it very clear what he wants us to take away from the story. You see, when we look at the passage, he goes out of his way because he introduces the story and then he sums it up all again with the takeaway, what you're supposed to understand. It, it forms the bookends to this account. Look in verse 40. As he begins, he says, And the child grew and became strong. And he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Then in verse 52, after he has told us a story, he summarizes it this way, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So for all of the things that we would like to know about Jesus, the early years, really the only thing that we know for sure is that during this time, he was growing. 
He was increasing. He was developing into what the Father had called him to be. How was Jesus growing? Well, Luke spells it out for us. He says he matured physically. That makes sense, right? You can, you can grasp that like any other boy. Every year he grew taller. His muscles got stronger. He hit puberty and his voice cracked. And then it dropped lower. He grew whiskers. He had acne. His body matured and developed just like any other normal human beings would. He increased in wisdom, it says. How did Jesus get so smart? I mean, how did, how did he know all that stuff from the Bible? See, I think it might be far too easy to assume that Jesus came to earth with all of the wisdom of the universe pre-programmed onto his hard drive, or maybe as some kind of massive cerebral download at his baptism that gave him instantaneous random access to all of the scriptures and limitless insight into human nature. But the truth of the matter is, most of what Jesus knew, most of it came the old-fashioned way. He learned it. What was Jesus doing in the temple that day anyway? See, most often, this story is referred to as the boy Jesus teaching in the temple. But, you know, that's not exactly what it says. Look at your Bible again. In verse 46, it says, They found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. But Luke goes out of his way to stress that Jesus was listening. Jesus was asking questions, and Jesus was giving answers of his own. You see, I think the problem with seeing Jesus as some kind of a supernatural genius who never had to study and never had to work hard at understanding is that I can't relate to somebody like that. I mean, he might make for a great legend to admire, but not a very good example to follow because I'm not like that. There's a lot of stuff I don't know. There's all kinds of stuff I still need to learn. How do you think Jesus learned the art of carpentry, for instance? Well, I suppose he listened, he watched, he practiced, he made a few mistakes. Ah, see right there? Now, that's why you always measure twice and cut once. How did he learn carpentry? How do you think Jesus learned the art of living? Pretty much the same way, I suppose. Because wisdom was something that Jesus needed to increase in. He needed to gain more of it. He grew in relationships. It says increasing in favor both with God and with other people too. Now, I have to accept the fact that Jesus did not sin on that day when he was 12 years old and did not load up with the caravan headed back to Nazareth. That doesn't mean that Jesus didn't learn a lesson that day, though. Maybe he made a little old note to self. If for no other reason other than family harmony, in the future might be good to run it past mom and dad before I decide that I'll be coming back a day or two later. This is part of the art of living that every person has to learn. Here's one more way that he was growing, and this is just huge. He learned to obey. 
I want you to watch something that happens here. Here is Jesus with certainly some sense of awareness that he has a special relationship and divine calling from the heavenly father while his own frazzled, emotionally spent, confused parents cannot wrap their brain around the full implication of what is going on. And so what does the Messiah of the world do? Verse 51, then he went back to Nazareth with them and he remained obedient to them. Have you ever in your life had to come under the authority of someone who didn't totally get it? Have you ever had to come under the authority of someone who in some way, intellect, understanding, spirituality, in some way was beneath you? And do you remember how hard that was to do? Because if you've ever been in that experience and you can relate to that, you should be encouraged Jesus remembers how that feels too. Because we know that Jesus was sinless, we unfortunately often make the leap to assume that he didn't have to struggle either. But that's simply not true. Jesus always did the right thing, but he struggled to obey and he agonized to submit. That was part of the art of living that he simply had to learn. Over in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8, it says this, Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And what's interesting is that the context of this verse is talking about Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's facing the imminent reality of the cross and what that is going to cost him personally to carry out the Father's will. And he is struggling with the desire for something, anything other than this option. And yet all the way to the very last night before the cross, still Jesus is learning obedience. Just like we have to learn it too. So here we start out in Luke chapter 2, and we're given this very early picture of Jesus at age 12, and a single snapshot of how in his humanity he is learning. He's learning in wisdom. He's learning in relationships. He's learning to obey. We fast forward all the way to one of the very last pictures given of Jesus. On the Mount of Olives, facing the cross, God's one and only perfect, sinless son, and still he is learning with great agony to obey. So there are a million things I would be absolutely fascinated, curious to know about Jesus the early years. But the Bible has not been written to satisfy my curiosities. It has been written to give me everything that I need to know. Everything I need to know to believe what God wants me to believe, to hope for what God wants me to hope for, and to live in such a way that will fulfill his glory and design in my life towards him. And some of my curiosities, for the time being at least, will have to remain unsatisfied. Maybe I can have a chit-chat with Mary and Joseph when I get to heaven. But for the time being, I'm just going to have to remain unsatisfied. But there's one thing that God wanted to make sure I knew. In those years, Jesus was learning and growing. And that is something I think it is safe to say never stopped in his days on the earth. And this is an encouragement to me. 
You know why? Because I don't know all the answers. And I don't always understand the right way to go. And for me, it is still sometimes a struggle to do what I know is right. How about you? Do you still need some answers? Do you still need to know some ways to go right? Do you still struggle sometimes to do the right thing? Maybe you've never thought about it before, but following Jesus means doing what he did. And that means, among other things, being willing to learn and grow. He was made like us. The scripture says, like his brothers and sisters in all things, he was made like us so that we could relate to him. He was made like us that we might follow after him. He was made like us that in and through him we might have hope. But part of being more like Jesus means willing to be a work of growth in progress. Henry Ford once said, anyone who stops learning is old, whether they're 20 years old or 80 years old. I think that's true. I hope you're planning on learning something new in this year called 2021. Maybe you're thinking of picking up a new hobby or going back to school, reading some new books, going to learn from a counselor how to be a better husband, learn from a dietitian how to be a healthier you. I hope you're planning on learning something new this year. After all, that is what young people do. I hope you're also planning on learning and growing in the ways of God in this new year, 2021. And by that, I don't mean just by stuffing another sermon or two into your head, but practically learning how to live out with wisdom in the context of relationships what your Heavenly Father has designed you to be. Because when you're willing to do the hard work to to learn and to grow into God's very best for your life, this is part of what it looks like to grow into the footsteps of Jesus. Because Jesus was willing to learn and to grow into the Father's design. Heavenly Father, you you know painfully well um, how far we need to go. Lord, some of it's just understanding. We We just don't know your truth and your ways and your wisdom to the degree we should. We don't always have the insight to know what you're calling us to do practically in a complicated world with this truth. And even when we know what's to do, we struggle to know how to actually do it. Because we do still sin. We still know what the right thing is to do, but choose to do something else anyway. So we need to learn. We need to grow. Certainly in wisdom. Certainly in favor with yourself and with the other people who are around us. So Lord, I just pray that you would keep us spiritually young. Desiring to take one step closer to you today than we were yesterday. Even if yesterday was a two steps backwards day, this would be a step forward day. And in the knowledge of who you are, in the design of what you've called us to be, and toward the hope that we have called, we will grow today a little bit closer to what you've called us to be, a little less like who we used to be. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus who gave us an example of what it looks like to learn and grow. In his name we pray and say, amen.